this week in the market. Silver blasted further into orbit with the NASDAQ in record territory, maybe on its way to 10,000. Well, welcome back to GoldSeek.com Radio. Your host, Chris Waltzek. Just a pleasure to be with you on this July 26th, 26th, season 14, episode 706 show. Well, silver and palladium move sharply higher, and the NASDAQ might be poised for 10,000. Will gold touch 10K in the coming years? Several of our top guests think so. In part two with John Scursey, the founder of Corona Capital Management, shares his outlook on the financial markets. He says it's not time for financial complacency with mountains of global debt and bank intervention on an epic scale. He's concerned the entire system could collapse with over 7 billion individuals losing confidence almost simultaneously in the fiat money system. It could rival anything we've seen in hundreds of years. And of course, we discuss the Gershon method. This was from Dr. Max Gershon and, of course, Dr. Lorraine Day and their remarkable techniques for battling really serious diseases. Their methods did so much for our family. Then Mary Joyce makes her debut on the show. She worked for two major metropolitan area newspapers as a writer, columnist, and artist. She's made some remarkable findings that I think really tie in so well with our Ancient Artifacts Preservation Society and SignalHunters.net. But I think you'll really enjoy our discussion. Robert Ann wraps up the show with his latest must-hear report. And we'd like to field your questions and comments. You can call into our Q&A hotline, 641-715-3900, followed by extension number 514049. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Robert Ian wraps up the show with his latest must-hear editorial. Goldseek.com begins now with a market weather recap. Visibility was virtually unlimited over the precious metals sector as investors continued to turn to the yellow metal ahead of next week's expected rate cut. At Friday's closing bell, the metal was off just eight dollars at fourteen fifteen. Silver though was up twenty cents at sixteen forty, about one and a half percent. The XAU precious metal shares tread water off about a dollar. Black gold was around fifty-six twenty per barrel, but it was palladium that added twenty-two dollars at fifteen thirty-one. Platinum finished near. 868 up sharply. And I think one of the best values other than silver. Meanwhile, gold continued to hover near the highest level in six years ahead of next week's FOMC meeting, where our Fed Chairman Powell is expected to lower rates a quarter point and offer guidance on accommodative Fed monetary policy. The current CME Fed Funds futures suggest a rate cut cycle could be announced as soon as next week's July 30th to 31st meeting. On Thursday, robust U.S. economic data, U.S. weekly jobless claims fell to a three-month low, pointing to solid strength in the labor market, while orders for new key U.S. capital goods surged 2% last month. Elsewhere, gold touched 1434 on Thursday on news that the European Central Bank signaled its plans to lower rates. The ECB, however, left benchmark rates unchanged. The bank chief called for a significant degree of monetary stimulus, though, down the road. So sort of mixed messages there. Although the ECB is dovish, some investors were a bit disappointed last week that there wasn't immediate action or more forward guidance on 
their QE operation plans. Bottom line on precious metals. Well, the big story this week, silver continued to rally. It flew higher as investors noticed what we've been saying for months. The gold to silver ratio was at 95, still in the 90 area. Incredible opportunity to exchange just one ounce of gold for around 90 ounces of silver. What an opportunity. Clearly, the dovish Fed and now the ECB are just what investors are looking for. They see signs of inflation down the road. Turning to the Wall Street report, mostly sunny skies over the New York Stock Exchange as investors picked up shares, sending most of the markets into uncharted territory, especially small cap and tech stocks. By Friday's closing bell on Wall Street, the Dow was off just 38 close to break even, around 27,200. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 ended up about 50 at 30.25, almost 2%, while the NASDAQ stole the show up 183 at 83.30, the top headline moving the market. Data Wednesday suggested that second quarter U.S. gross domestic product was healthy, but slowing a bit, giving more wiggle room for the Fed to cut rates. The the official GDP number grew at 2.1% in April, to June, that was well off the 3.1% by about 33% from the first quarter. However, the number topped market watch expectations. They were expecting 1.8%, a few tenths of a percent higher than expectations. But Morgan Stanley economists were looking for 2.5% in the second quarter. And new durable goods, however, in the U.S. rose by more than double forecast mixed economic numbers. On the trade war front, negotiators from Washington and Beijing are scheduled to meet in Shanghai next week. So far, investors have really ignored, I think, the trade dispute mostly due to the small scale of the tariffs and, of course, the pro-business attitude in Washington as well as Beijing. U.S. shares, bottom line. Well, the markets continue to startle the bears. Who forgot the one rule to investing? Never battle the trend or the Fed. As noted in the last report, I wouldn't be surprised to see higher share prices this year. Who would have expected it to come, though, so quickly? Clearly, investors, institutions alike are rotating through these unloved sectors, such as the XAU recently, which are now pausing, looking for bargains. Now that we have a full-fledged breakout underway, I don't see any reason why we couldn't have $10,000 NASDAQ and $4,000 S&P 500 within the next year or so. And remember where you heard that first, when you see those numbers on CNBC. Coming up after the break, more Gold Seek Radio. It's just a real pleasure to welcome Mary Joyce to the broadcast today in her debut appearance on GoldSeek.com Radio, the author of several books, including Cherokee Little People Were Real. Done some great work up here in Western North Carolina. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mary Joyce. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's so great to have you with us. And why don't we begin with, essentially, you're really a scientist and you've done some excellent work in the area of backing out what's going on with a remarkable tribe, let's start there, that just seems to be outside the typical archaeological and anthropological uh, venues. That Where it started was at Western Carolina University, and uh, I knew nothing about Cherokee little people when I moved to North Carolina in the late 90s. Um, 
and I kind of uh, kind of dismissed it as just you know old legends and tales. And one day, an elderly man came into where I was working. Uh, he's he was very well respected in the community. He was a World War II hero. Uh, had been a pastor for like forty plus years. And he said, "No, they are real." And when at when he um, got out of the military, uh, he worked at the university doing construction work. And when they were doing construction uh, or digging in land that was supposed to be a virgin, they would find these little tunnels. And they typically were cut out of uh, dense red clay. They were square cut with an arched top and probably three and a half, four feet tall. And uh, he said they, they were found, you know, several places around the university. He eventually connected me with other old-timers who I never would have been able to uh, speak to if he hadn't opened the door for me. So for about a year on Saturdays, I was interviewing these guys around uh, kitchen tables uh, to get their stories. I had done my own research and found that nobody had recorded this information. That was the reason I did the book. I didn't just do a book because I wanted to do one. Um, I felt it was real important to keep the information. And uh, you know, over the years when new construction projects were being done, whether it was sewer lines or new buildings, they would find these little tunnels. Uh, they also found um, little skeletons, and uh, there was a, one professor who kept a small skeleton on his desk. Um, I kind of regard it as like a decorative paperweight, and he just said it was a, a skull of a child from one of the Cherokee mounds. Well, a high school uh, English teacher went and picked it up and looked at it real closely and said, this can't be a child's skull. It has all of its wisdom teeth. Um, so that's how the, the story got started, and then bits and pieces would come in after that. Um, uh, I have a photo in my book of a little alien-type face that's found in the same area as these Cherokee people, and... Uh, back in the 1940s, there was uh, a really historic flood uh, in the in the area around where this university is, and lots and lots of uh, topsoil was washed away. And this little boy, who was five at the time, found this uh, medallion. Uh, uh, he called it a lead head because it was so heavy, and it had like a leprechaun face um, etched into it on both sides. Uh, it may very well have been molded because it had a seam around the circumference. And um, to this day, I think he would be in his 70s or 80s now, he still has it. And then there's the uh, old Judicola rock, which is, you know, in the same area. And this is covered with um, petroglyph markings that nobody can understand, even the Cherokee. It seems to predate the Cherokee. Um and in case people aren't aware of it, the Cherokee originated from the Great Lakes region, migrated down here. And when they arrived, they um, uh, saw all these well-tended gardens, but there were no people around. And finally, they saw these little people coming out from beneath the ground at night. And so they would call them the moon people. They would come and, you know, take care of their gardens at night and take the produce down uh, into their into their tunnels. And that was the original name the Cherokee gave the little people.
first of all, I've got to corroborate everything you say. I, um, I've lived in this area as well about 15 years and have family members who, you know, work, let's just say, in construction, and they've come across, you know, roughly three-foot-tall tunnels, always with arches, way that they incorporate their artwork into the actual red topsoil. But we've run into thousands of petroglyphs. Um, yes, the Judicola rock, the face on the petroglyphs, but it's really just the tip of the iceberg in this area and really around the world. It's not too far from here. It's a bit north of our area, Silva. We found what we're calling the singing pharaoh. And uh, the singing pharaoh is sort of a young, slightly bearded male who, when the light or the exposure to the rock adjusts, um, his beard appears to grow a heavy reddish beard. And the, the creatures around him are clearly very difficult to describe if you're not a researcher in the area. That's just one tiny example of what we're finding uh, in this area. So, And also, everything you've described about the little people, um, that's precisely what our colleague in Colorado is finding, but in, I mean, numbers that I think people wouldn't believe. I mean, whole mountain cliffs with these folks, and he's actually produced an image of one he's met face-to-face. -face. A whole bunch of information that goes way beyond Western Carolina uh, regarding little people, so if you want to go further with it, that is not a problem. Uh, I do want to emphasize that we get different reports of how the little people look, and even the old stories, they talk about the Cherokee not liking the ones that had the red beards, uh, and they would even try to kill them. And there might even be evidence that that actually happened. Uh, I talked to, you know, uh, some old-timers who were once moonshiners, and they had a still up um, on the original Cullowee Road. They found a what they called a pile of little bones, um, so it could very well support the old stories. So we have some that are described as the, the moon-eyed people or the moon people, and they had uh, bluish tint skin and the big eyes that would be more like alien. Then we have the ones with the red beards that would look more like the leprechauns, and then we have the ones that uh, look, uh, you know, very much like the, the Cherokee. So there is not uh, a uniformity in the appearance uh, of the old reports. You know, this is fascinating uh, because you and I, we had a long discussion pre-show uh, the other day on this. And since then, I've been contacted by another researcher, oddly enough, from Illinois, who seems to back up everything you're talking about here. He's found uh, compelling evidence from Easter Island of a race larger than leprechaun size, red-bearded, extremely pale-skinned overlords who evidently were revered as deities on the island, at least by one of the groups. As you know, Easter Island, rather complex history, uh, began as a highly agrarian society and ended in, sadly, in cannibalism, which is so common when there's not enough resources and other issues. What you tend to see with some of these little folks, um, the eyewitness reports, is maybe what they're comfortable with or with their their subconscious mind might be expecting to see. People are bringing their preconceived notions to what they actually see and may distort it. I couldn't have said it better. And the other thing I'd like to bring up to folks' attention, um, we have substantial evidence of a reptilian uh, race, actually several, many, many species. I'm crafting a hypothesis here 
that we had a very, very small and extremely ancient race of bipedal humanoid-like reptilians who, because they were subterranean, survived the uh, Pleistocene epoch as well as any comet impacts or, might I say, many solar events, which we think, due to uh, Dr. Vogt and Dr. Schock, our friend in, at Boston University, uh, we believe that that has been a huge problem here on Earth for a long time. Most of my listeners will know that there are chameleons. They can change their uh, coloring to meet their environment, okay? It's a self-defense mechanism. But most, even iguanas, which are not chameleons, tend to take on the characteristics of their environment. Where am I going with this? Just briefly, I'd point out, um, just as we have skills that are way beyond, let's say, a chimpanzee, which are highly intelligent, you know, you won't see too many chimpanzees play uh, Tchaikovsky or play the violin, things of this nature. We have very refined, subtle skills. We think that these very long-lived subterranean reptilians have also honed their chameleon-like skills. They have remarkable ability to perhaps even confuse, you might say. I think it's a very complicated world, and I don't think we can neatly put everything into one category. Uh, I wish I'm going blank on the name of the author right now, but he is uh, uh, he was a very, very well-respected man who is at the highest levels of NASA, and uh, he worked with Werner von Braun, um, and he lived to be, uh, I guess he just died a couple years ago, and he lived to be well into his 90s, and his uh, last book reveals reptilians as well as more the Pleiadian type were involved with uh, NASA from the very beginning and were the source of much of the information and technology that NASA developed rather rapidly. And he said the reptilian ones were able to, uh, for short periods of time, actually uh, transform into very human-looking uh, people, that he had seen them uh, let's say at a at a meeting within NASA, he'd seen them like go down the hall afterwards, and before they were totally out of sight, they had gone back to their original uh, reptilian shape. So they're they're uh, I guess calling them a chameleon would be perhaps an understatement. First of all, I can back up what you said. I've spent the last six months backing out high res images from NASA's archives from the Curiosity rover. Everything you just said, we're finding. Rather sophisticated narratives, petroglyphs, Alex Jones has discussed the individual you're, you're referring to uh, many times. David Icke, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. The reason why I think it's important is we don't want to alarm anyone. But let's face it, it's important that we're aware of what's going on because what we referred to as gnomes and leprechauns and little folks in the past um, maybe that was just a moniker at the time, something more sophisticated. Well, even the Cherokee people believe that they, uh, as a species, originated from the stars. They believe that they came from the Pleiades, and they hide many of their uh, creation stories in uh, Legends of the Seven Sisters, which goes back to the seven stars of the Pleiades. And so um, if, if they believe that they come from uh, the stars, then it's not so far-fetched to, to believe that the little people also thought that. And there's, um, you know, legends around the world saying that that's where the little people originated from. You know, we've had so many great uh, scientists, physicists in the past. You know, their whole lives were turned around. Uh, you know, Stanton Friedman, the late Stanton Friedman, 
Friedman was on the show, sadly, passed recently. He had a brilliant career in the jet propulsion industry, preparing to send just one G per day. You can approach light speed in just one year's time by increasing uh, very slowly the, the rate in space. So they were building these crafts around the time I was born, and he met some interesting folks and was stunned by the evidence and created an entire career in the area. Tell us a bit more, though, about the people who have contacted you. It seems like you're quite a nexus, a network for people who are interested in the area. You've had some people, I believe, former military types and maybe intelligence agencies that have brought uh, their opinions to you in the past. We have, and it's been done on a whole lot of subjects. So uh, give me a clue as to what you're the most interested in. Tell me a little bit more about, if you don't mind, some of the um, security issues they're concerned about. And, and don't be afraid to stretch the uh, envelope, if you like. Okay, before I do that, the name of the author came back to me that I was trying to remember before. And any of your people who are full, you know, firmly on the ground and uh, very um, educated and they're not quite ready to go uh, to the extremes on many of these subjects... There is a book by William Tompkins. And so if you type in his name with Amazon, I'm sure the name of his book will come up. Um, and he gives a very, very thorough, you know, explanation of what was going on at NASA uh, involving ETs and how much the ETs actually, you know, made so much of our technology happen. I believe it was on Joe Rogan. He points out his contacts with NASA. They uh, were stunned at the level of contact that was going on there, and he paints an, a not terribly rosy picture. Clearly, Mary Joyce, we have an advanced civilization. Okay, at some point, it was either here, they either visited here on Earth, or what we're beginning to back out or back engineer, there was a remarkably advanced culture worldwide at least 12,000 years ago, which um, North Africa, Asia, Central Europe, and of course the United States. Pyramids all over the earth, they're tied directly to this ancient culture. It was one of their favorite ways advertising who they were, what they were, what their beliefs were. They carved their petroglyphs and motifs all over these pyramid structures and uh, that's what we're just finding, especially out west in the United States. And here, even in western North Carolina, structures, not in the traditional pyramid, they've been worn down due, due to heavy weathering. They simply need to take time to do some research. As you said, there's tons of it. Some of the things that have stuck in my head, you know, are just unusual things, like at the bottom of a coal mine, they have dug into dirt and inside, let's say, a, a, a ball of uh, a rock of uh, coal, they've cracked it open and they found, um, you know, engineered pieces of machinery that would have to, you know, date back, you know, forever for something to be buried that deep into a coal mine. So, you know, anybody who wants to close their mind and say that uh, ancient civilizations on this planet are impossible, they simply have plenty of evidence and people just, uh, you know, we had Dr. Vogt Diehold Foundation. Find his stuff on YouTube if you're uh, just tuning in here now, folks, please. Uh, Douglas Vogt has, just like Mary Joyce, done some really, I think, seminal work in this area. His empirical evidence is very solid. That approximately every 12,500 years, we have a mini solar event, or micronova. It does two things. Firstly, on one half of the Earth, you know, you'd have an immediate response from the electromagnetic radiation. 
and whatnot from the sun. It kind of cooks that side of the earth. And then about 12 hours later, the other side of the earth, as we spin around, is struck violently by uh, plasma. Uh, it would be almost like a or glass beads striking the earth causes just global cataclysm, which ends in a mini ice age. He's quite a geologist, so he, he has the evidence from that perspective. We just, however, are not convinced that it's rather cataclysmic every 12,000 years. Looks more like about a quarter million years cycle, maybe a 100,000 to a quarter million years. And you might think of it as a reset. Uh, Dr. Shock, I know you're familiar with his work on the Sphinx at Boston University. He corroborates Dr. Vogt. He says we're having micronovas, as do, you probably know Brian Forrester's work as well in petroglyphs all around the world, and especially Egypt and South America, South Central America, where he, I think he lives, resides. We think we're getting a reset, Mary Joyce, um, roughly somewhere every twelve to 100,000 years. Uh, besides the, you know, like it's 11,000-year cycle that's been associated with the solar flares, uh, at least all of my life I've read about it. In fact, I did a research project in high school and got deep into it. But that is a minor cycle. There is a more common cycle that's 26,000 years in the making, and I can't give you details on it now. But, you know, it would take longer for humankind to figure that one out simply because it's a greater span of time. So there are cycles in our galaxy or in our universe uh, that are enormous by human standards and therefore harder for us humans to identify. We have a researcher in Colorado I mentioned to you pre-show. His work is extensive. He's got about five years of videos now on YouTube who has found stunning amount of information on boots on the ground, evidence, he does a video almost every day, can't get enough of their artwork, and he talks about how they seem to have the ability to zap him, is, is the term he uses, maybe blinks his mind, uh, puts a, a Band-Aid, if you will, or a piece of scotch tape over his memories about them. He talks about how sometimes these advanced individuals seem to be able to morph or doppelgang or change into typical animals like a squirrel or a deer or something, or at least lead one to believe they have that ability. Does this ring a bell? Several things come together. I know a lot of people who, not a lot of people, but there are people who have been abducted, and many of them come back with memories of owls. And, um, you know, the owls have the big eyes. Well, the ETs have the big eyes, the, the ones that do the abduction, not all of them. And so I think that um, many times, perhaps for our own sanity, um, some of these um, out-of-this-world memories are distorted or blocked out or uh, transformed into something that the human mind can deal with. Does he think he's dealing with uh, Bigfoot, or does he think he's dealing with something? Originally, he believed it was Bigfoot, originally, for, actually for about a year. And as he found astounding what he f refers to as structures, and I, look, I'll be honest with you, one of the sites that this individual has located my experience with people who have contact with Bigfoot, most of them are very simple, down-to-earth people. The people, I mean, um, I'm thinking specifically of two women right now. They don't know each other, but they both live simply close to the ground. They would have, at least one of them has this more motherly kind of um, energy about her. And the Bigfoot are much more inclined to meet with um, and open up with people like that than you know, the scientists that come out there with the gear and the equipment and the, you know, the left-hand brain.
this individual oftentimes takes folks to the woods who are hunters or former hunters and things like that. And he's found that whenever he's with someone else, they just don't appear. They will not reveal. Yeah, they will not reveal themselves as he has some technology. I, don't, I shouldn't say technology, but camera skills that are unbelievable. And it has a super zoom. And when he looks away and starts thinking, you know, pleasant thoughts, they reveal themselves. I always have to search and try to try to find the validity of things. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because what happens when he takes some of these, it's very rare, maybe 10 videos, but every now and then um, what seems to happen is you see what, what I would describe as a cloaking. Uh, and by the way, you're going to have to look really, really close. I actually download his videos. I pull the images off and then take our technology here on the workstation and enhance it three, four, five fold. But what I'm seeing and what we're finding here in the office, a pharaoh mask. Uh, in fact, this is another hypothesis I'm working on because we're finding the individuals out in Egypt, of course, at the other sites where the sphinxes around the world, the giant sphinxes. What we're finding is they always, when they engage these little people that we're finding, they always have a giant pharaoh mask in front of them. And then you see these giant, it seems that they had to use these masks because people just couldn't see them otherwise or they were afraid that it would harm the people they were communicating with so that our minds are either A, not frightened by them, or B, our brains can make sense. What we see are, think of as masquerade masks, giant masquerade masks in the trees, down below, under rocks. And, and what's interesting is it seems to hinge around his mood, at the time. So if he's in a really anxious mood, someone just was making fun of him on Facebook, you know, he's, well, I can't stand there. Then they have a kind of a, you know, a scowl look on their face. But if he's really excited, I can't wait to see the little people today. You know, there's, they're kind of cheerful expressions, but every now and then he meets one face to face and he says, folks, this is so rare. It's once a year, but they seem to have forgotten you know, to turn on their cloaking. And he always prefaces it by saying, oh, this wasn't mine. Uh, someone else put it up there. Uh, I don't know what it's doing here. And you're looking right in the eyes of one of these little people. It, very thin, which surprised me. Very thin, very small. About half the size that you found. And I would say non-human, hairless. My experience is here in western North Carolina, in eastern Tennessee, and out in South Dakota on the, one of the Sioux Indian reservations. In all three cases, even though there's some differences between each of them, they look like little humans. Three and a half feet tall. Do you think it's possible that these creatures that we think we're seeing um, that don't look of this earth, that are non-earthly, is it possible that it's just a, a masking or a cloaking? The Cherokee people here look like regular human beings, but in their ancient history, they say they originated from the Pleiades. It's the same with the little people that look very human and have been here for a long time. And when they go back into their ancient history, they say they too were from the stars. So when I say star origin, I'm going way back in the history of the Indians and of the little people. Now, when you talk about aliens, that's a whole different thing. Well, let me just share something I think you'll find interesting on the little people. We have found here, and you know, I haven't even put this video up. I, I, my mind blinked on it. Giant frescoes in, let's just say the Southwest, because I've got to protect this location. I still can't wrap my mind around it. And I get what I call a blanking every time. I keep forgetting to put the video up. 
This fresco is, I'm going to say, 70, 50 to 70 feet, 75 feet tall. It's as large as an Atlanta bypass 285 or I-85 overpass. It's carved similar to an overpass. And it's in, let's just say, one of our southwestern states, as I mentioned. In it is multidimensional 3D little people. Okay, smiling, and depending on the exposure of the light, they always do this, by the way. I'm convinced most of them were subterranean. I'm not sure what your work shows. But they seem to love sunrises, sunsets, moonlit petroglyphs and frescoes. They were a very, how do I say this, promiscuous, at least this tribe, extremely promiscuous. They were very proud, extremely proud, and they always were paired. They either paired with females or they paired with males. There seems to be... Uh, genetic blending between some of the greys and human beings, and there's quite a bit of information out there about hybrids. In one of my videos that we found on the Red Planet, Petroglyph on the Red Planet, found what we're referring to as alien metamorphosis. On the Red Planet, there is the birthing from sort of a birth canal of this sort of humanoid-looking creature. And surrounding this creature, an insectoid-looking alien a salamander-like creature, hovering above it, and I kid you not, is a floating, highly evolved, reptilian-looking creature, and just in the background is a six-fingered, bigfoot-looking creature. Because we see this theme time and time again on the Red Planet. There must have been a hybridization program at some point on their small planet. Because the creature that's being birthed It's sort of like a larva sack. It's not an egg. It's not a live birth. Only way I can describe it would be um, maybe an insect larva sack. This is just what we're finding. We'd love to have you back because we haven't even probably scratched the surface of your research. Can you tell people more about the great services you have as well as your books? We're going to have all the links up on our web pages. I have the book, which is called Cherokee Little People Were Real. It has photos and location maps and the testimonies of uh, the different people who have found the skeletons and found the little tunnels. So that might be of interest to people. Uh, since that book came out, um, I have posted uh, 10 different articles about uh, little people. You know, I could do a whole show just on uh, what we found in eastern Tennessee. So in the 2018 archives of uh, a section that we call ETs, Bigfoot, and uh, Other Beans, in uh, the 2016 archives, I've got five different articles. Four of those are all about very unique uh, little people in Tennessee. There's also uh, things, well, there's stories in the 2018, 2017, and 2016 archives. Uh, that are related to little people. Well, Mary Joyce, I just can't wait to hear about what you're working Eastern Tennessee and all the rest. Mary Joyce, thank you so much. All right, you have a good day. The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an 
off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through one gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, one gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion by 2021. Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's Shareholder Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, Many Jewelry. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Thanks for choosing GoldSeek.com radio as a trusted business and investing news source. The reason why chemotherapy appears to cure cancer is that it makes the individual patient so ill they can no longer consume the toxic food, the root cause of the illness, and it purges the body of the heavy metals and toxins. I don't know if people are aware, but the head of cancer research and in, in treatment in this country. Here is a direct paraphrase. The most important thing to do for any cancer patient is to move as far away from a cancer treatment center as possible. To take people who are holding on with all their might and giving them the false hope that making themselves even more sick is somehow going to cure them of this is absolutely wrong. So I, I got to give you a hat tip 
for being one of the only people with the foresight and understanding to recognize it's, it's worse than bloodletting and leech treatment, in my personal opinion. I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, it is downright medieval, and it does bring you, it does harken back that period where um, medical treatment was done by things like bleeding people. Um, you know, that isn't, that chemo is not that different from that concept. And um, it's, it's a rather uh, shocking uh, kind of thing that people can accept it with such complacency. And, uh, you know, hopefully most people never have to um, be faced with a choice like that, but um, it's certainly something that people need to be aware of if that ever happens to themselves or a loved one. At the risk of repeating myself, I mean, we're huge advocates of the Gershon treatment and anything that builds the immune system because, of course, at its root cause, all cancers are a response to lowered immunity. It's not to say it's obviously much more involved. There are so many aspects here. It appears to be emerging of a virus with a prion. Uh, some people believe that it's HIV in tandem with the prions, if you want to get all technical. But at the root of it, uh, we are huge advocates of, of course, uh, reducing the glycemic levels to virtually zero, just enough to survive because cancer thrives with three key areas. A, high glycemic levels. So you lower your blood levels, which is not terribly difficult to do. And B, obviously loves an anaerobic environment. Flood your body with as much oxygen, antioxidants and whatnot. But we also have treatments where you boost the immune system, intravenous vitamin C, medical grade. This, of course, gives your body the um, ability to fight off this invading force. But what you don't do is take an ill patient, tear their immune system down, whereas people who don't undergo the treatments but follow a much more healthy methodology or treatment tend to live. We want our listeners to thrive, not just financially, but, um, you know, health-wise. It is important to just basically think for yourself and not just put trust in so-called experts or uh, the so-called, um, you know, common school of thought. Um, you know, and, and one of the things I would say about the present times that we are in, which I view as being, you know, highly unstable highly in flux, is that it's also a time when complacency is making daily all-time highs. And whatever has been going on with this switch in the Fed, for equity investors, it has emboldened them to go out and just buy more of the same things because they believe that, you know, the Fed has their back Central banks are on their side and that, you know, nothing bad will ever happen again. Um, and to even, even, you know, to gold investors, and I'm a big believer in gold, um, they also think that maybe this is the beginning of the nirvana period for gold in which, um, you know, low rates, negative rates, money printing sends it back to all-time highs and beyond. To, to bring us back to the very beginning of our talk, we have to be prepared for very stormy weather. 
This is not a time for complacency. Everything you see right now is an abomination. Um, the interest rates going to a negative territory on something like $13 trillion of debt, that is an alarm bell ringing at about 150 decibels. But you should listen to that. Um, so many other things that we are taking for granted, we should understand are the product of massive daily intervention by official bodies that would be considered blatantly illegal if a private entity anywhere in the world were to try to engage in it or even think about engaging in it for five minutes, kicking day to day. It's what keeps the lights on. So I think people should consider the um, likelihood of stormy weather, number one. And number two, you know, what is going to be my protection and my strategy in the face of that stormy weather? And, um, and that brings out a whole bunch of other things, which, you know, I don't know if we have enough time to go into, but I think the beginning is recognizing where you are and thinking about the actual risk environment that we are in and the nature of the system that we live in, all of which are things that just happen to be the way they are, and it's a product of the times we are in. But uh, we are living in an extraordinary time because it happens to be, in my opinion, the very end of the life cycle of the financial system that we have enjoyed for better or for worse, for 50 years. Uh, opportunity of a lifetime, because Chris, this doesn't happen every lifetime. We have to understand the scale of what is in front of us. Um, financial systems and global currencies do not disintegrate every lifetime. Obviously, this is a much bigger cycle you're, you're talking about. The typical investor, they are short-term focused. Sadly, our policymakers have a short-term focus. Maybe the system's just set up that way. Maybe we're wired that way. The difficulty is, I think, wrapping one's mind around the enormity of what we're facing. Perhaps no one alive can really recall, or very few, the end of the Civil War and the fallout of the mini inflations and economic devastation following that. It's very difficult. I mean, we could be facing something that rivals the Great Depression and the Great Recession. Can you give us your thoughts on contingency plans? First of all, I think that this, the time scale of one of these events is similar to one of those comets that just come into our solar system you know, every few hundred years. It's that kind of a time scale. And it will reshape, you know, our lives and it will reshape our future, much as what happened in 1971 did. So, you know, we think of a lot of these things as, you know, just the way it was supposed to be. But, you know, so much of what happened had everything to do with what occurred, I mean, in our economy had everything to do with what occurred in 1971. So people should never underestimate, you know, what could be rearranged by 
the kind of transition we go through from here. And, you know, in terms of the answers, Chris, I think, you know, uh, very few people, if anyone, including myself, have the answers. Um, but we can look back at history and see little glimpses of things that happened in the past that pertain to what is going on now. So I'll, I'll throw out a couple of things for people to consider. And since, uh, and I'll start with um, gold because obviously there are people in your audience who um, are interested in that subject. So here's one of the first things I would throw out uh, when it comes to gold, which is, do most people understand what the market cap of gold is? So if you actually do that exercise, it tacks back to the concept of big numbers. What we know of in terms of the physical gold that has been taken out of the crust of the earth from the beginning of a period that goes back about five or 6,000 years is that it is something around 180,000 metric tons where a metric ton equals exactly 1,000 kilograms. So for people who want to run the numbers, that's more or less what you're looking at. It's not a great deal of metal if you put it all in one place. And people have done various um, pictorial diagrams of what such a pile would look like. And it isn't that large in terms of its cubic volume. But that's all the gold that exists. And if you looked at it from a market cap point of view, I believe it's somewhere around... 8 trillion U.S. dollars at the present price. So right off the bat, that makes it a very large asset in the whole scheme of things. It would mean that it's more than, you know, all of Apple, all of Google, all of Amazon, all of Facebook, and a few others combined. Um, and in terms of daily volume, it's even bigger than that. So um, that's something to consider because when you talk about the price of that metal going up, it takes a lot of activity, a lot of capital to move the needle on something that big, just like it does to move the needle on an Amazon or a Google or something like that. Um, but here's another interesting thing. It turns out that as big as the physical gold sphere is, the sphere of paper gold is much, much, much larger. Now, paper gold didn't even exist until sometime in the mid-1980s, I believe. And it was a response on the part of policymakers that you know, we're trying to manage outcomes. Um, central banks basically made their gold available to the marketplace as a way of keeping, quote-unquote, an orderly market 
Um, and they introduced the concept of paper gold, which was basically a way of putting gold into the marketplace without selling your own gold. Because the other interesting thing about central banks is they are loath to sell their gold. Why should they when they can create money with a computer keystroke? Why would you ever sell gold for an, another currency when that currency can be conjured up at will to any amount you desire? So the act of a central bank selling gold is clearly for a non-economic purpose. This non-economic purpose was what gave birth to paper gold. So the reason I brought that up, Chris, is that um, because it is, it is actually a number which I find rather stupefying. One of the things that, that really makes an impression on me. So depending on um, which expert you talk to, because there are people that have tried to put a scale on how much paper gold is really out there. And just to make sure people know what I mean by paper gold, paper gold is a piece of paper that basically says, I owe you, Chris, 10 ounces of gold. And rather than you buying 10 ounces of gold and figuring out where you're going to put it, how you're going to insure it, it may just be easier for you to buy a piece of paper and stick it in your brokerage account and just rely that the person who made you that promise is going to fulfill that promise. And, you know, that sounds like a pretty, you know, normal kind of concept. And But the problem is, what if that concept goes totally haywire in the sense that you end up making more promises than all the physical gold that exists on planet Earth. So tacking back a little bit, so those experts who've tried to enumerate the um, open interest or the outstanding amount of paper promises to deliver gold, by varying accounts, um, it could be as much as 500 times the amount of physical gold that actually exists. Well, the implications of that are rather shocking because obviously those promises have no physical way to ever perform. And yet investors, um, you know, we have satisfied the investor demand for gold largely through the production of this paper, which is conceptually flawed and absolutely um, not real gold. So my point is that, you know, you have to think about when, when we reach this stormy weather, what is going to happen to certain assets? And I don't pretend to have the answer, but you would think that gold would be a natural beneficiary because it is not a form of debt, it is pure equity, it has no counterparty risk, and it has no debasement risk. That all sounds fine to me, and it sounds like um, a green light as to why you should own gold. The problem, however, is in the real world, there is gold 
And there is this enormous creature called paper gold that just towers over the physical gold. And so, you know, when things go bad, they all go bad. And that paper gold is definitely going to go bad because it's a dead instrument. So the question is, what happens? And, you know, I don't know what happens, but I want to suggest to people in terms of the category of being prepared that rather than think that because the world's central banks have now more or less, you know, pulled up the flag and it looked like they've given up in the sense that they're ready to do more rate easing, they're ready to print money, they're ready to do literally what Mario Draghi said is whatever it takes. Rather than that being the green light for gold to just go to the moon, it might actually go down first. And the reason is there is a whole lot of financial trouble that takes place if gold goes up too high or too fast, which is that it literally imperils the financial system. And it's something that I didn't think about before because I thought, you know, gold is always the antidote to a problem in the financial system. And it might be, but you might, you might find that the gold market gets rather ill first before it gets better, before it gets a lot better because of this paper gold and the likelihood that you have to do literally whatever it takes to keep it alive. It won't be kept alive indefinitely because it can't be. Um, it's another credit instrument and it's reached, you know, beyond its own limits. But in the effort to keep it alive, we may end up killing the gold market temporarily. It'll come back to life for sure because it holds the key to resetting the financial system later after a failure. But, you know, looking back at history, I'll throw out a couple of things. One is, how many people remember um, what happened in England in the late 1990s when Gordon Brown was the chancellor of the Exchequer and he made the decision to sell off half of England's gold at what turned out to be the very bottom price of a, you know, decade or more long bear market in gold. You know, basically my message is be prepared for stormy weather that, you know, even though, you know, you think things should work out a certain way, it doesn't mean that you take a side trip in the absolutely, you know, opposite direction first. And um, I see that potential in gold as, as I do in, in so many other things. Um, the difference with gold is that, you know, in terms of uh, being a long-term wealth asset, there's no question that it will be uh, the wealth, the, the most preeminent wealth asset going forward once again, a role that it's had pretty much since the beginning of financial time. Uh, so while it may endure some tough sledding, uh, it will come back and it'll come back with a vengeance. But one should be prepared for that because we're just not in normal times. 
I don't think the same thing could be said for stocks. I certainly don't think the same thing could be said for bonds with you know negative interest rates or extremely low interest rates. If people look at a history of sovereign debt, what they'll see is really a history of sovereign debt default. And I think given the kind of numbers we have uh, with debt, um, you know, people should realize that de facto, all of these governments are insolvent right now. So it's hard to conjure up a rosy scenario for any bond that people are buying at a negative interest rate or at a nominal interest rate. Uh, that's not going to um, stand the test of time well. And, you know, equities will have um, some very tough sledding ahead. I just think that we're in a period of enormous change. Uh, we are at a period where we're near the end game of our financial system. There's always a bull market somewhere. Now, during the Great Recession, gold, I feel, held its own. It peaked to trough, wasn't more than a 30% decline, a sideways action with just gold itself, not the shares. However, the safe haven turned out to be, obviously, short-term debt, treasury bond. They held up surprisingly well in the U.S. dollar. This time around, it looks like we're looking at something far more serious. Do you have any other safe havens, or is this going to be such a crack up? There's no life jackets, there's no life preservers, there's no lifeboats for the typical portfolio. That is certainly a question I ask myself every day, and um, again, um, I don't have all the answers, but I look to the past and I look to people that um, have had a lot of experience and uh, have lived through some difficult times. I would encourage people in your audience, Chris, to listen to um, an interview with a person that isn't very well known, except in uh, certain financial circles. His name is Robert Wilson. And for people that know him, he has he has a reputation of having been uh, maybe the greatest short seller of all time. Um, he's probably modest enough not to call himself that that way, but um, and I believe he's probably in his mid 80s right now, and he's long, um, you know, given up um, an active role in the investment world, but um, in the time that he was active, um, he was, you know, a breed apart. But um, one person uh, interviewed him in his whole career, and uh, you can find the transcript of that inter interview by Googling uh, his name. I believe his middle initial is either W or D, but if you Googled Robert W. Wilson, short seller, or something like that, you'll find this interview and you can um, read through the transcript. But basically, you know, what he said is that, um, you know, he said, first of all, and, and you have to remember, he was probably the world's greatest short seller, but he basically said that over his lifetime, looking back at everything that he did, he probably just broke even with his short selling. But one caveat, which was that when things went bad, that became the cash that he could deploy in buying up 
the really good things that he wanted to be long. And that's an interesting point because when things go really bad, they usually go bad with everything because markets are governed by human emotion more than anything, especially during, you know, some kind of a panic or whatever. And, um, you know, a portfolio that is designed with, you know, things that people are short are things that naturally become the cash or the value that is used to buy things that become ridiculously cheap that you know and understand. And I think we're coming up to a period like that. So, you know, maybe short-term bonds are a good thing as a substitute to being short a bunch of things. Um, you know, depending on, you know, are we going into normal kind of times and is it going to be a garden variety crisis or something different than that? Um, but, you know, I love to hear the stories and the experiences of people that have had legendary um, experiences like this guy, Robert Wilson. And, you know, I think we have a lot to learn about the future by looking at the past and seeing, you know, where we came from and give us an idea of where we are. All right, John Scursi, partner and portfolio manager, founder of Corona Associates Capital Management. If you could tell us what folks will find when we um, navigate our web browsers to your website, some of the neat services and excellent things we'll find there. We try to update what we're doing and, and what we're thinking as much as we can. We could probably do more of it. Um, you know, and and we have been uh, focused on gold, and we have been focused on uh, some short selling opportunities, and um, you know, we remain uh, very focused on this period of change that we are in, and trying to take advantage of it as best we can. And uh, you know, we are prepared for stormy weather, and I think everyone else should be as well, but I would encourage anyone that uh, would like to reach out to us to contact us either by phone or email, and we'd love to chat with anyone that has any questions or, or uh, comments. And, uh, you know, we live in a community of other people, and I always welcome, um, you know, other people's thoughts and formats like your show, Chris, because it's wonderful for people to exchange ideas and you get you know great ideas and great uh, confirmation of, of other things that you're seeing by interacting with other people. It's a great thing. I always encourage that. The dialogue tends to spark commentary. You might say infotainment. Let's um, get another update as soon as possible. Well, I am already looking forward to that and all the very best to you, Chris. Thank you again.
The blockchain revolution is transforming the global arena, disrupting every industry in its path. Goldseek.com is excited to introduce an off-the-chain opportunity in digital gold and silver from our friends at Atmex and Sprott.com. One Gold holds physical gold and silver medals at the Royal Canadian Mint, the first online marketplace to offer secure and convenient buying, selling, and redemption of digital precious metals. One Gold uses Vault Chain, a secure, immutable blockchain ledger developed by Tradewind Markets, the leading innovator in digital precious metals distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Vault Chain. Gold and silver are 100% redeemable through One Gold. For physical precious metals delivered to customers' doors in any size at competitive prices and low transaction storage costs. As a special offer and for a limited time only, One Gold is offering gold and silver at spot price with no additional premiums. OneGold.com is secure and accessible 24-7 on any device, offering convenient purchases and sales of precious metals. Easy recurring transactions make passive saving and gold dollar cost averaging as as easy as a single mouse click. Vault Chain offers the best tier pricing on AppMex products, setting the industry standard as a fully backed physical asset with easy redemption in coins, rounds, or bars, offering clients peace of mind and full transparency. Don't get left behind. Remember to bookmark OneGold.com for the safest and most convenient digital precious metals today. Remember OneGold. GoldSeek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice. Shopping for fine jewelry just got easier. GoldSeek.com has identified the most successful jewelry brand to launch in recent times. Many Jewelry is rewriting the way consumers buy fine jewelry. Integrity Craftsmanship, the only company to sell 24-karat gold and platinum jewelry, avoiding confusing alloys and gems, a true precious metals investment. Many Jewelry's disruptive business model embraces Franco-American craftsmanship and direct-to-consumer economics, rapidly disrupting the $20 billion monopoly, just like Amazon and Uber. The sky is the limit with $1 billion of jewelry purchases daily for loved ones and those special occasions. Many Jewelry is an innovator positioned to capture market share with annual sales growth in the industry topping $30 billion. By 2021, Many Jewelry coined the term investment jewelry, pricing by the gram, transparently disclosing its profit margins, a truer investment in pure gold or platinum. Similar to real estate, even artwork, Many Jewelry has a weighted value easily calculated, ensuring value wealth as a long-term investment. But sales in 60 countries around the globe, 20,000 orders already, don't miss out on the explosive growth potential. Many Jewelry trades under the symbols M-E-N-E on the Toronto Exchange and in the U.S. M-E-N-E-F. Remember to sign up to Many's shareholders. Club to receive shareholder news, updates, and special discount codes for jewelry purchases. Remember, many jewelry. Gold Seek employees may or may not own shares. Nothing contained herein should be construed as investment advice.